This podcast is brought to you by Alaska Air Cargo. You just can't ship seafood any fresher. Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we discuss the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I am Drew Cherry, Editorial Director. I am here with John Fiorillo in Seattle, Executive Editor, and Lola Navarro, Reporter in London, and Dominic Welling, Senior Reporter in London. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. So this week we're going to hit on uh, a few topics. We've been uh, all over the world, as usual. Japan uh, is the most uh, recent trip that we've uh, taken, and Dom, you were uh, you were uh, over there and uh, able to meet with some pretty high-ranking executives. So I wanted to just maybe start there, if we can just kind of discuss what those interviews were were like and your sense of where the Japanese seafood industry is is heading and what their strategy is going to be uh, going forward after talking to Maruha and Nisui. Yeah, um, so yeah, I went to Japan and spoke with the uh, CEOs of Maruha and Nisui and uh, actually spoke with the Kyo, Kuyo uh, CEO as well, uh, briefly anyway. But um, they all seem to be saying the same thing, um, which is obviously... Uh, wild fisheries, as we know, are basically flat and not going to be increasing notably anytime soon. So the future for this industry is going to come from aquaculture um, and also increasing uh, game of maximizing value out of uh, current products that they have. So uh, for both of them, those are the two main takeaway points. That's probably their strategy in terms of investing going forward is into aquaculture ventures and also processing. Um, all across the world as well, from what I could gather. Um, Did you get the sense from them that, I mean, is there is there a desire now to be looking externally to expand, or is it more that continued focus on the Japanese market? Because some of their comments uh, th- that I found really interesting were in relation to the Japanese market and just sort of the general understanding that this is not a market that they see ever returning to its former glory. Yeah, that, uh, exactly that. Basically, I think they're they're eyeing Europe and the US mainly as where the growth is going to come from. Um, but also in terms of Japanese food, though, like so, while consumption might be declining in Japan, in in places in, across the world, it's actually the Japanese food trend is increasing. So there's there's a opportunity there for them to sort of create new species and new ways of 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 eating seafood, basically. Um, so that seemed to be a strategy. And I know that Maruha is already this year, I, he declined to say who, but has bought a, uh, some processing facilities in Holland. Um, and he's, they're planning to do more in the US as well, um, buy more in the US. Um, so that's definitely their strategy, I think. Um, so it's not that they're going to leave the Japanese market behind, but I think they're just going to put more emphasis on external markets. I mean, it's always fascinating to me because these companies are just so massive, uh, yeah. and, and I have no idea how they go about managing such a such a structure. Um, because you know, for example, Mitsubishi. Um, I mean, their their main product is cars, mm. and I think they do God knows what else, nuclear reactors, and all kinds of other things. And then they also have seafood. 
And I think that's <laughs> kind of fascinating and just, um, yeah, just, just the way these yeah. companies are, are run. It's so, so different than what, what we're used to in, in the West with, um, with Western seafood companies. What I also thought was interesting is that they didn't seem to be too, well, obviously the competitors, those big three that I mentioned, um, but they all seem to get along and like every sort of event or press uh, briefing or whatever, they all come as, they come as a trio. I, I sort of noticed, I know I wasn't there for that long, but it seems like they're all, they're all on the same page. They're all sort of saying this, singing from the same uh, sheet. And uh, yeah, they seem to be friendly and get along. So they all seem to have the same vision of what they, where they want to go and what they want to do. Um, uh, yeah, I just don't know. I don't know why. I just thought that was quite intriguing. But I presume they'd all be like fierce competitors. <laughs> yeah. When, so. What What was your impression on the just the the trade flow, uh, trade floor rather, um, of the uh, Japanese uh, Fisheries and Technology Expo? Uh, you ran into Trident, which I thought was a really interesting uh, interview about their plans. But um, yeah, any any sort of other major takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to the uh, the president of the Fisheries Association um, about this, and they're really trying to make it more international. It's been around for like 20 years, I think, this show, um, and they want it to be like the fourth, the world's fourth largest after, you know, Boston, Brussels, and China. Um, but it still is really quite, uh, the majority of the companies exhibiting there are Japanese and local Japanese companies. Um, very few international. I mean, I think he said there were about 20 different countries other than Japan exhibiting there. Uh, but the vast majority are Japanese countries, uh, uh, companies. So it's quite, it's still quite domestic focused. Um, so that is a definite plan for them is to, is to sort of increase, increase the interna uh, international aspect of the show. Was, um, was there yeah. any sort of, I mean, in, in walking the show floor, I mean, you've obviously been to every other major uh, trade show. Um, mm. Anything that sort of jumps out that's different in the way that they are, uh, in, in the products that there are being marketed, or, or just in, in general in the way that they're presenting their companies? Or Yeah, I guess so. Well, like, I mean, the main thing that jumped out was the fact that it was very Japanese. It wasn't very international at all. Um, so there was a lot of sort of weird and wonderful seafood products on on show, I mean, one stand, I think it was a company called Nosui. They had like um, their own sort of processing setup in the middle of the show. So they were just, they were making seafood and then <laughs> just sort of putting it out for anyone to eat as you walk by. Um, but they seem pretty, I'd never heard of them before. Uh, it's probably just me, but um, they're pretty big um, and they have big plans, but they supply to, to all the restaurants um, in the sort of izakaya bars and, and stuff like that and retail um, value-added products. And yeah. they're also considering moving out of uh, Japan as well uh, because that's obviously in Japan itself, it's sort of stagnating. So they're looking for new sort of income streams and that seems to be coming from exports. And, yeah. yeah, international markets. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was they had like a world sushi <laughs> competition as well. But... Um, yeah, it was it was different, definitely different um, to the other big seafood shows. Uh, Although the guys, the the um, president, the Fisheries Association president said that they had more visitors there this year than Brussels and Boston, huh. which I did find quite hard to believe. Um, but yeah, but in terms of visitors, not in terms of exhibitors, but you know, football people passing through. Um, 
yeah, again, I found that quite hard to believe, but that's what he told me. Well, ambition is good. Um, so we'll sort of see. Everybody wants to get into that market, so who knows? Maybe uh, maybe they'll be able to succeed there. Um, well, thanks, Dom. Uh, I'm going to kick it over to um, sort of some explosive news that, that happened um, last month. And Lola, maybe you can talk to us a bit about uh, AgroSuper and AquaChile and just how that came to be and what that's going to mean because that's um, the the cliched game changer, I think, for Chile. Yeah, but the, it is really a game changer. I think it was a huge deal. It Well, after speaking with a lot of people in Chile, apparently it all happened really, really fast. Like the deal was done in, in less than a week. Apparently nobody... Nobody knew that was coming, and and yeah, it was it was. I think it's great news for the industry. It's gonna have so many repercussions, like short term and and long term as well, just because of the size of the of the acquisition, but also what it means in consolidation and and also the reach that the company AgroSuper is, well, the reach that it has in different markets with different proteins, and. And what it's going to mean for for the salmon trade, like the trade of Chilean salmon in the world, it's already it's already a product that's going to all the key markets. But um, I don't know. We've been reporting a lot on on the on how this is going to affect to suppliers. We talked about feed suppliers, and <clears throat> and they've also been talking about how this is gonna is gonna affect the pharmaceuticals, like the ones the ones supplying the vaccines, the vaccines for the salmon, because Aqua Chile has one supplier and then AgroSuper has different suppliers for the for the vaccines. So this is gonna also affect that. But it's like if if we think about the acquisitions that Aqua Chile had made before it was acquired by AgroSuper, so Salmones Magallanes, for example. Uh, a lot is being said about this <clears throat> this company and how it set the Chinese market. So this was the leading company in the Chinese market, and and just because the companies down there in the in the Maga, in the Magallanes region have got uh, an option to farm bigger salmon, and 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 this is the salmon that China is 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 buying. I think this is going to be a game changer in that sense as well, because right now the salmon going from Chile to China is mainly going through newer current, but the companies that have been now <clears throat> put together are not members of this newer current uh, consortium. And, and I guess that's also going to change the way that it reaches that market and, and the, the, the dynamics there. Chile is or China is definitely one of the main markets for Chile, for Chile and I think this is going to mean more volumes going there. Uh, the Chinese demand is just increasing, so I think this is going to change. Uh, yeah, the <clears throat> the Chilean footprint, or yeah, the the reach to the rest of the world. Is there a sense? I mean, because there there's been so much additional M and A activity over the past uh, year, in particular, or so both interest and actual completed deals. So, is there a sense at all of that? There's a lot of other movement happening down there, and that we're going to see more of this. Uh, and as a second part of that question, is Agro Super uh, telegraphing that they that there's more work to be done, that that they want to consolidate more? Uh, well. 
the first part of the question, I think there is, yeah, there is more acquisitions and, and <clears throat> mergers coming in, uh, from Chile, not, not of this size, but yeah, probably more to do with the medium-sized companies um, that are left like with yeah, 40,000, 50,000 metric tons of salmon, those companies that are left in the middle are probably looking <clears throat> at each other, seeing how these uh, mergers work and looking for buyers. We've, we've talked with um, Ventiscares in the past. They said they don't want to sell. They don't want to sell, but they definitely want to buy. And they're definitely looking at, at different uh, producers in the country to, to collaborate somehow. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to be AgroSuper, and, and I'm not sure if it's going to be uh, buying another salmon producer. But the word is that um, there is going to be some changes in the feed, uh, in the feed production side of things, because AgroSuper has its own feed production for all the protein that it needs. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's. That's definitely something that's going to happen. I think this wasn't the last deal in the Chilean industry, but yeah, I'm not really sure where it's going to come from. Yeah, it, it's definitely. It seems to me it's um, back on the uh, you know back on the uh, on the the rise again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was a yeah huge deal, and yeah, I think I think it's the beginning of 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 this new age of of investment they've been talking about it for for a couple of years now but i think it's just now it's <clears throat> kicked off okay so so let's shift back uh north to uh the u.s market and john you, you've had a couple of interesting columns uh in the past couple of weeks about the u.s retail uh market and um i wanted to, to just ask you to to dive into those a little bit, but one of them was the retail smoked salmon market, um, and it's it's always been an interesting landscape. But you were able to dive down, got your hands on some IRI data, and where where is that sector right now? And just in in all your conversations with people from the um, from the uh, smoked salmon uh, market, what what are you hearing about where that industry's heading? Well. Um Recent activity, sales activity on the consumer side has been strong, especially in the last year. So everybody's fairly buoyant about um, the market itself. What I took a look at is I took a look at the branding um, of of that uh, product category. And uh, anybody who's been into a U.S. grocery store will immediately notice that there are many, many different brands of uh, smoked salmon products uh, in the chill case. And um, there's the reason for that is there is no quote-unquote national brand. There's no brand that kind of um, tops, you know, uh, dominates the market share. So um, it's a $175 million um, category. And... Um, you know, private label is the largest brand of all, and those are store brands and, and other brands. Um, but the ones you think of, the, you know, the um, Ocean Beauty brands and the um, Acme and those types of brands, they all have a share, but nobody's dominating. So 
my column was basically about, you know, will there ever be a national brand? Does anybody have designs on that? And, um, you know, people I talked to on background said there is quite a bit of motivation to become a national brand amongst several of these companies. So that may or may not come. It's a big investment. Um, you know, the contracts are, are fairly sizable given the size of some of these companies. So stealing business is not easy. Um, so yeah, it was, I just found it interesting about how fragmented, uh, that, that sector is. Well, and, and I think the, the idea of, of coming into a new market with the brand is, is, uh, is fascinating because uh, it's not easy to do. You have to, to forge completely new relationships. And I'm always surprised by how quickly um, you mentioned Foppin in your column. But brands like that that are just kind of nobody's heard of, they're not maybe even it's, – it, it's odd that consumers would even take to it with the brand kind of having a funny name. But it just really seems like these, these, uh, these brands seem to resonate with – certain consumers um and there does always seem to be space so it kind of raises that question of do people uh, i mean when when you have a situation like that it does raise that question of do people really care about the brand are they buying because of the brand are they buying because of availability so i think the idea of a national brand is is definitely interesting and probably one whose time has come so um it'll be interesting to watch that space well it's kind of interesting you uh on Foppin because the genesis of the column came from, I was grocery shopping at QFC, which is a uh, Kroger uh, store. Um, I don't know, this was a month or two ago. And uh, I just happened to be going past the smoked salmon section and I saw uh, really nice packaging and it was hot smoked Atlantic salmon uh, branded Foppin. And you know, Foppin around here is known primarily for private label Costco stuff, and they have some some um, uh, branded product in Costco, but it's the traditional uh, cold smoke locks type stuff. So this caught my eye, and, you know, naturally I brought it home, and it really is an excellent product, to, and I bought it several times since then. So, um, you know, that whether whether a product can get to that level where people just the repeat business is so strong that it becomes you know kind of a label a national brand i don't know it's just there's just so many of them out there but you know companies are are moving in that direction so they tell me yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to watch. So, well, I, I know we have some uh, some some other uh, topics to discuss, and, and just quickly before we finish, I want to slide in uh, Yeehee because it's just so much fun to write about, and, and uh, they've just been a fascinating uh, fascinating flame out. And maybe maybe John, you wrote sort of the final chapter on it uh, this week, and sort of put the the body to rest and said the last rites, but. Um, Effectively, the the brand is gone. But what struck us as interesting is it just sort of floats around on the internet still. Yeah, it floats around on the internet, and you know, to be to be precise, if I can be, the, the Alaskan Jacks brand, which uh, Yeehee was producing and was being marketed by this uh, company called Resource One, that brand is, for all intents and purposes, dead. Yeehee, the company 
it, it's unclear uh, what their status is. I couldn't get a, um, a response from Steve Chen, their CEO. Um, their website's still up, and they have Ocean Eclipse and a couple other um, uh, brands that um, they sell directly. So, but as far as the Alaska Jacks brand is, it, it's important. This brand is important in the sense that it came on like so many brands do came on like gangbusters in 2015 ish or so, uh, at the Boston seafood show. And, you know, it won a best product award and they had a big booth and blah, 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 blah. And they, you know, they came back. Um, and then this past show, no, nowhere to be seen. So <laughs> it's, you see this with seafood brands all the time. They they surge onto the scene and then they just kind of run out of gas. And there's probably millions of reasons why this particular one died. And I don't think uh, we can know them all. You know, I'm I'm sure it's a relationship thing between the two companies. But um, they did a really nice job with branding and packaging. And the product was, you know, it was as it was good. It was, you know, flavored salmon, basically that you could uh, you could fix real quick. Um, I'm but, I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna stop you there, John. Uh, we did a we tried it on their their salmon dumplings, and and I I recall that not being maybe a a, a superstar product. Yeah, but okay. First of all, dumplings not easy to do. Uh, no matter <laughs> no matter who's doing them <laughs> as a retail product. Secondly, that it, that was we probably chose, you know, something off their main line. Their main line it was uh, wild salmon portions in different, you know, barbecue flavor and all these different flavors. So to be fair, but yeah, the product wasn't very good. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, but you I, have I to I, admire that they did something new, like you said. I mean, the the fact that anybody comes new with a new product and does something different. It, it shouldn't be uh, viewed, I think, by the broader industry as, as a, a major threat. Um, but, but at the same time, um, it's difficult to go from concept to delivery and the consistency and the traceability and everything you need to sort of say in a, in a retail store. Yeah, I mean, they were in Walmart and, I, you know, how, how do you know how our sales are ever doing i was told by a couple people that they used to appear on the iri um um sales data and you know have dropped dropped off some time uh last year so that's fairly indicative of no more product going through no more sales i my sense is it was kind of operational rather than on the demand side but it's it's just i i can't say i'd just be guessing so I don't know. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. There's there's a parallel there of of the fact that brands can come into a crowded market, and even if they flame out, they can have an impact. You know, and uh, I remember when they hit the market, when Yeehee hit the market. Certainly, we had a lot of calls flooding in saying, you know, hey, what's going on? You guys need to look into these guys and see what what the deal is here because this is weird um, that they came on so fast. But, you know, it maybe exposes a little bit of a weakness there and a little bit of a failure of imagination on, on behalf of some of these entrenched brands across the world that, 
you know, that there's there's others that can jump in. So Yeah, if you really want to read a fascinating tale of a company and its attempts to, you know, brand a product, go into the archives and just our archives on our site and just search Yeehee and start with the oldest stories first and just follow through it it's really a fascinating story it probably could be a case study for some uh business uh course in college or something because i mean the roller uh, describing it as a roller coaster is an understatement right don't do this 101 um all right well let's uh let's leave it uh leave it there i appreciate all of you uh sharing your thoughts uh again remember you can find us on intrafish.com you can sign up for our newsletters there as well as social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, etc. Thanks for joining us, and we will speak to you next time.